I've hit start recording, but that doesn't mean to say we're going to use any of this. I just, I like to capture any pre-match banter. Okay. Do you want to introduce yourselves, boys? Hello, Ed. It's Tony here, Tony Temple. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, thank you. Yeah, uh, absolutely. A pleasure just to echo Tony. Just just a few sort of uh, housekeeping notes, Ed. We It's all recorded. It's all recorded then edited, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to that end, should anybody stumble, cough or fumble? I did not mean that to rhyme, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's all good on that front. Now, I do have a dog. So if somebody comes to the door or walks by the house, you may hear a dog barking. <laughs> That's so, okay. You- we normally ask you to turn off notifications. Can you turn off any dog notifications as well, Ed? Uh, no, I can't. She doesn't respond to uh, computer commands. Hello, I'm Ed Log, a former programmer at Atari's CoinOp division, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard May and I'm here as ever with Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury. Hello. And the author of Missile Commander, A Journey to the Top of an Arcade Classic, Mr. Tony Temple. Hello. For this episode, we speak with a programmer's programmer, Mr. Ed Log himself. Understandably dubbed the Golden Boy by his contemporaries, Ed was responsible for such iconic Atari arcade titles as Asteroids, Centipede and Gauntlet. Of course, we talk at length about these big name games, but as usual, and in keeping with what the Ted Dabney Experience podcast is fundamentally about, we delve much deeper into the Edlog archives. Not for the first time, we encountered more than a few technical glitches with our platform of choice, Cast, and we lost a good chunk of really interesting chat about video pinball. But there should be enough here to keep even the most knowledgeable of you engaged. As ever, thank you for listening. You can support us via Kofi. The URL for that is ko-fi.com forward slash TDE podcast. And you can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Ed, I wanted to start by seeing if you could settle a bet for us. We, um, One of our previous guests, Steve Calfee, your old boss at Atari, asked if we knew what Ed was actually short for. Now, Tony has guessed Edmund, Richie has guessed Edwin, and I think it could be Eduardo and you're secretly Spanish. So which one is it? It's Edward. Edward. <laughs> and, and by the way, that's not even my first name. Is that <laughs> it? That is it. I was, thinking, Ed, I was just saying, Edward is hardly a revelation, right? So you mean that Ed isn't your first name? What is actually your first name? I don't give that out. It's because when they ask me my first name and I you know, give it to them, and then I get mail from that, you know, I get mail from that under that name. I know it's junk mail. So, well, I will we'll allow you to remain as anonymous as, as possible. Um, Ed, you were also given the nickname Golden Boy while you were at Atari. Perhaps you could uh, tell us how that particular um, uh, moniker came about. I'm not quite sure how it started, but, you know, people refer, were referring to me that after, of course, you know, uh, centipede and asteroids. But uh, when John Solwitz left Atari, he had a T-shirt made, you know, it said Golden Boy and gave it to me as the, uh, I was officially became Golden Boy when John Solwitz left to go to EA. Well, what? A, a, yes, a, certainly a, a, an impressive title. And also, I, I understand your business card at one point uh, had the legend Super Duper Game Guy. Um, That's correct. <laughs> did you? Did that you, was uh, at Midway when I joined to do, uh, I was a contract employee to do uh, consumer games for the N64. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was going to my first CES, I believe. And the, uh, I told secretary I needed business cards you know, I need to pass them out. So, well, she asked, well, what title do you want to put? And I shrugged my says, I don't care. And, and Howard, uh, one of the uh, producers walked by and said, well, how about Super Duper Game Guy? And I looked at him, looked at the secretary, and said, sure, fine, why not? Well, uh, while we're massaging your ego, Steve Calfee also 
named you as one of the top three game designers of all time, along with Shigeru Miyamoto at Nintendo and Yu Suzuki at Sega. Right. Um, would you be in your own top three? You know, maybe top five. <laughs> <laughs> who, would, who would you add in there then? <laughs> Jarvis, I might add in there. You know, for Hoss's cruising and for Robotron and things like that. Of course, of course. I just wondered to, to start the show, is it what do you think makes a great game designer? A great game designer comes up with great game ideas. Okay. So <laughs> how do you know that something's a great game idea? It sells like shit. If you pardon okay. me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Let's uh, let's go back to the uh, start. Um, I was going to ask about your early experiences of computer games. Were you fortunate enough to have played Space War when you were at college, university? Yes, I, I was. In fact, uh, I was at the Stanford AI lab when they showed me Space War for the first time. Wow. And uh, I think they got it from MIT. But I played it on a little hand-built controller, and there was two or four people. And, God, those guys were so damn good, they blew me away. <laughs> and later on, it's they've had a couple of PDP machines down at the Stanford Forum uh, on a quarter play per. And so I actually played a coin-op version of Space War around 1972 or 71, 72. That's amazing because I think that might possibly have been Galaxy Game by Bill Pitts and Hugh Tucker, which arguably may have just pipped computer space to have been the first coin-op operated video game. So you were there right at the start of coin-op. Um, well, it was... Even you know, back then, did you think, I want to be part of this? You know, I always liked games. I was always getting in trouble. You know, I had a summer game, uh, summer job, one summer working at uh, TWI or TWR, or TWR, I think it is, down in Redondo Beach. And I was always doing things. You know, I'd run little uh, puzzle solving things at night and I got reprimanded for doing non-work things, you know, running computer jobs overnight. I got it. I want to work to control data. I was always doing things. Uh, for example, I'd taken, uh, if you remember the original adventure game yes, or the original Star Trek game, it was all written in Fortran. Yeah, yeah. One was written in Control Data Fortran and one that was written in IBM Fortran. And I ported them back and forth oh. so that they worked on both Fortrans. And my wife, who happened to work at the Stanford, uh, the Linear Accelerator, uh, had IBM machines up there. So she used those games up there, and they were using them to debug the Rulberg, which is their system they built there, until the government came and said there are no games allowed. So they had to take them off. But so, yeah, I did lots of stuff before I actually got into professional game design. Yeah, you know, I was the sort of repertoire of all things of, uh, if you remember the old Overstrike printers, you know, you could print out pictures by overstriking. And I had a the massive library for stuff and I had calendar printing things off and Snoopies and you know, all sorts of things. Ed, um, everybody we talk to who works at Atari always has a, an interesting story about how they managed to find themselves wandering down uh, the the halls of Atari. Um, can you tell us how you heard about the uh, opening at Atari and what was it that made you made you apply for the job? Well, first of all, I was working at Control Data Corporation, which if you know where it is, it's across the street from Atari, the tw across the street from 1272. I lived, it was on the same street, Boragas. Okay. Um, and I had a coworker who went over there and said, hey, you ought to come over and apply. And I was getting really bored with what I was doing there. So I put in my application, and I was interviewed by Mike Alba. And and was the interview process fairly fairly relaxed, or was it was it more formal? Uh, I don't remember how I dressed. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, we, uh, I was wondering, Ed, uh, the development setup when you arrived and when you started at Atari. Um, just how primitive was it? It was very primitive. Let me give you a, a sort of a rundown how it did. Uh, we had a black box. We had one or two HP analyzers that we could clip onto the processor and, and sort of analyze, you know, do, do a backtrace and see what actually happened. And the black box was simulating the basically EEPROMs that would be plugging into the board. Mm -hmm. And what you do is you load a paper tape that would load up the memory. Now, of course, the black box had a keyboard, so you could patch the memory. So you could put a jump off somewhere that you're not using memory and put a few instructions and jump back. So that's how you did debugging. Now, the way you generate a paper tape is you wrote down all the changes that you wanted to make and submitted them to a couple of gals in the PDP room, and they would generate a listing and a paper tape for you in an hour or two. So you actually had, there was some dead time between that and you supposedly filled it with 
some other constructive work. And I'll tell you a story a little later on what I use to fill that extra time. It's interesting because, I mean, obviously in the here and now, things are done in sort of real time. You know, you, you can make a few clicks on a keyboard and, and you know, something changes be, before your very eyes. I, I just find this sort of disconnect between, well, that's not right. We need to fix it. And then it's got to go down on paper and then get submitted. And like you say, there's this dead time. And then it comes back. And then presumably you can look at it again to see if your changes worked. Correct. Now, of sort, you can always patch it and check your changes before you know you, before you actually submit it. So you know often your changes work, but a lot of right. times, as with all games, you do one part, you know, check it out, debug it, yeah. and then you add a whole new section of stuff, new level or new something. Interesting. And um, uh, one of the first projects uh, uh, Atari got you working on was a game called Dirt Bike. Um, just how far did that game go? Uh, well, let me take you back a little bit. When I joined, uh, I replaced Dennis Koble, who went over to the consumer division mm -hmm. and became famous for doing a lot of consumer stuff. When I took over, he had two games that he had finished, Avalanche and a very large, extremely large, basically depth charge game where you actually had a large periscope that you actually looked through, and that's it had the monitor in it. Uh, the periscope game, I don't remember the name of it, but it did not go into production. Avalanche, of course, did. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't do much except maybe check the manual and sort of if there were any questions come up in production, you know, deal with it. But he'd started Dirt Bike, which was basically, I think, Sprint-style hardware with two or three, uh, or I think three or four bikes on the screen and handlebars of a dirt bike. And that was the, the game that was currently there. And it went all the way to field test. Yeah. And uh, let me get take another take you back a little bit. Remember I mentioned there was dead time between time you got your next paper tape and listing from the last time you submitted it? Mm -hmm. Well, during lunch one day, Owen Rubin told me that Nolan told me he had some ideas for doing different versions of Breakout. And I told them, hey, I could do those. And so what I did was uh, when I submitted my dirt bike changes, I immediately swapped over EEPROMs for the graphics for Breakout, which became Super Breakout. Okay. And I was working on Super Breakout. So I was ping-ponging between the two games. Oh, interesting. So there was there was no dead time for me. And I had never been done at Atari before. And I don't think it had ever been done at Atari since. So I was actually working on two games at the same time. Now, I had six flavors of Breakout and Super Breakout, mm -hmm. some of them hitting off the side of bricks and stuff like that. Progressive Breakout, Double Breakout, and Cavity Breakout became production bottles. Yeah. But when we got to field test time, I was field testing both Super Breakout and Dirt Bike at the same time. Right. Now, of course, Super Breakout blew away Dirt Bike's earnings, so they obviously didn't make Dirt Bike. The decision was easy for them. Ed, we've got a few more questions about Super Breakout. Before I do, um, I think I might have figured out your um, your actual name. Do you want me to take a stab at that? And you want me to verify? It? Well, I think it may be George. And, and why did you say that? <laughs> the fact you said you didn't say no makes me think. George Ed Log, Asteroids, 1979. So you're credited <laughs> at MoMA. <laughs> have, we, yeah. have we found it? Have we got it? Yeah, you got it. Oh, mate. Too much. More fan mail on the way. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to call Retro Gamer. <laughs> Anything I get, I'll just... No, there's no George living here. <laughs> it's like Fight Club or something. Okay, Super Breakout. Um, yeah, let's... Um, so, okay, you've alluded and, and talked a little about Super Breakout. Um, the original Breakout, Ed, was created in hardware. So when you came to code Super Breakout in software... Um, you know, could you could you use anything from the original breakout, or was it a, was it a completely clean slate? It was a completely clean slate, but I had to sort of guess at what angles were used. In other words, a two to one. Uh -huh. In other words, if the ball went off a two to one angle or a three to one angle, I had yeah. to guess at a lot of those. Right. Okay. So okay. So it's less physics and more. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I had to guess. You know, because I had played breakout. I, w I played it back at a pizza arcade at, uh, I think, in, uh, I don't know, I think it's probably probably San Jose. But I'd played it before, so I'd actually put money into to a cabinet. Right, right. And i actually been to the original, uh, it's um, a comedy club right now where they had the original uh, breakout. Okay. The original story about where the uh, coin box overflowed with quarters. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's They working. actually had yeah, a plaque sure. on the yeah. wall. And last time I was there, the plaque was gone. So. And that, that's, a, that's a true story, right? It's not just anecdotal. It's, it's a true um, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Um, Super Breakout has several modes, one featuring multiple balls and then progressive mode, yes. um, which which was kind of like Space Invaders, you know, as the bricks come down the screen towards you. Um, were you aware 
of what other arcade companies were doing. Did you did you go into the arcades at the time and see what the competition was up to? Yes, I had got into arcades and seen what the competition were up to. But by, by the way, Super Breakout preceded uh, any of those other games, so I had not seen any progress. I had not seen any scrolling down games prior to that. So I thought that was the first. So this was a, a case of great minds think alike, rather rather than any form of um, direct inspiration. That, or anything that's like that. correct in this case. Yeah. Sure, sure. And, and and of course, Super Breakout was your first big hit. You know, was that was that a relief, Ed, to, to have such a commercial success under your belt? For me, it was just like, well, it was kind of obvious. <laughs> Excellent. But, but, but looking back at it, you know, it's great to be there at the right time and the right place in, in an industry sure. that was starting to take off. Okay. Did you actually get a bonus, Ed? <laughs> Atari had a wonderful program, and I'd like to congratulate them for far thinking ahead of rewarding programmers for do, creating hits like that. So yeah. uh, yes, I did get a bonus for that. And I got uh, larger bonuses for subsequent games like Asteroids and Centipede and Gauntlet and other things. So they had a wonderful program for that. It did not include, uh, by the way, a consumer thing. So if consumer took that and created a cartridge, and I have a story about that too, I would not get any bonus off the consumer until much, much later in Atari, Atari years. Yeah, we, we, we hear consumer was um, perhaps something something of um i don't know what the right um the right euphemism would be perhaps um a little more disorganized than coin up in in the later years is that is that the case i wouldn't consider it disorganized um it was basically marketing driven right so for example on the case of et and uh, raiders uh, you know et in particular yeah where basically they made a deal and basically guaranteed 10 million units or something and they didn't even have 12 million, 10 million base units out there. Yes. yes and yes. I've heard about other things. You know, they said they wanted it in six weeks. And I'm sure management told them, you know, you can't get a decent game in 10 weeks. And they basically responded, we can sell anything. Just just do it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Steve Calfee said two, point, two points on a graph and a line. <laughs> that, was, that was basically the, the, the sales projection for the base units. That's correct. Or, or the, 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 the hopeful sales projection um can we let me just rewind ever so slightly um talk to us ed about nolan bushnell and um you know your 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 relationship with nolan in those days um and perhaps you know, i don't have any first-hand knowledge of that but when i had joined atari in uh, february 1978 um time order had purchased uh, atari yeah sure and okay. so he yeah. was running it but i had i may have run into him and i've certainly met him since mm. several times but i didn't really have any interaction with him in a day-to-day -day basis okay fine so so no no rolling up in his rolls royce or or jumping in any hot tubs no but i've heard lots of stories about ray kassar but that's you know all hearsay too yeah sure water under the bridge or hearsay under the bridge no Excellent. I, okay i have oh, one God. of those uh I'm just another high-strung prima donna T-shirts, by the way. You have sorry, go say say that again. You have what? Uh, well, Ray Kassar was being interviewed by I think Fortune magazine. Yeah, and he, they asked him about the engineering. He said, "No, they're just a bunch of high-strung prima donnas." Oh, and you had T-shirts. That's what he thought. That's what he thought of engineers. So, coin up engineering had T-shirts made up for everybody. We wore those T-shirts. It said, "Well, I'm you were the a, real Atari, right?" Yes, <laughs> that's what I considered it because most of the consumer titles were taken. Certainly, later years were taken from coin-operated games. I just like to dig up some 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 you know past animosities. Let's, let's see, see what anecdotes come out. Well, actually, consumer was an upstairs of twelve twelve sixty five. I think twelve sixty five. Okay, they were upstairs from us, so you know we had sort of close proximity. Okay, and I mentioned earlier about a super breakout story. Let me tell you because Atari had the policy of us being able to buy the prototype game when we, they were finished testing, field testing. Right. So I had bought a version of uh, Super Breakout, uh, but consumer had come down and said, uh, may we borrow it because we want to do a cartridge. I said, sure, you can borrow it. Mm. So about a year later, I wanted to take it home. So Friday night, you know, I get the Atari truck, go up with a hand truck and take the game down and take it home. I go back next to Monday morning and I hear that the police recall that somebody had stolen the Super Breakout game from Somebody, somebody broke in and then broke out. <laughs> no, well, they, they'd reported the stolen game. And I had to go up and say, no, that's my game. No, no, it's, it's our game. No, it's my game. I paid for it because we had to pay 50 bucks for it. No, it's my game. No, 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 it's, it belongs to us. No, it's not. Oh, wow. Ed, does the uh, T-shirt still fit? <laughs> uh, yeah, it still fits. A little tighter. Okay, good. 
Ed, surely there's no interview with it salt with you that doesn't mention uh, the mighty asteroids, of course. And obviously, as Atari's best-selling game of all time, it was literally a game changer. Arguably, the game that broke the stranglehold of Space Invaders um, in the US. I'd, I wonder if you can talk to us about where the germ of the idea of asteroids actually came from. Uh, before I do that, I want to tell you that every time I come out with a you know really big hit game like Asteroids, came out with uh, Space Invaders and uh, Centipede came out with Miss Pac, you know, Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man. I was always like number two on the list, as it were. <laughs> but uh, so it, it wasn't really a stranglehold. I was already like number two when it came out to, you know, monster hits of a mm. particular time mm-hmm. when I came out with my hits. But the idea behind Asteroids, I went into Lyle Rain's office and uh, he mentioned a game that I had seen back when I joined in 78. It was a large rock in the middle of a screen. And I don't remember if the game was the sort of shoot somebody else on the other screen, but everybody kept shooting the rock, hoping something would happen, but nothing ever happened. And he said, well, you know, I remember that game and everybody will shoot the rock. And I said, yeah, I did the same thing. And he said, well, why don't you just, you know, let me start blowing up the rock. And I said, well, I could do that. And, you know, I'll think I'll have big pieces blow into medium pieces, blow into smaller pieces. That way there's some kind of strategy and I'll need something to come in and shoot at you if you don't do anything. So that was the impetus for the saucers. And he wanted me to do it on raster. I said, no, 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 no. I just, you know, I played Space War on a XY monitor and I'd just gone off of doing some work on Lunar Lander where I had done all the alphanumerics. Okay. Uh, and I said, no, we got to do it on XY monitor. Now, I did not I did not know at the time that there are nice effects. Like if you shoot, because of phosphor decay, when you shoot a shot in asteroids, it has this track behind it. And I didn't, I, I did not consider that at the time. So that's one of those, niceties that come with using an XY monitor. And because, you know, use the thrust and your ship seems to have a little shadow behind it as it moves. Yes, I was going to mention that, actually. I mean, it sort of strikes me that the use of the vector hardware is, is, as you say, you know, surprisingly turned out to be sort of crucial to the game's DNA in some way. Yeah. But when I told, I told Lyle, says you have something, you know, we had 320 by 240 was the resolution of monitors at that point. Yep. And the uh, XY monitor is 1024 by 768. So you've got gobs and gobs more. And you can tell when you point which way you're pointing. Right. And um, tell us about the game's development, because this was relatively new hardware for Atari at the time. Did, what, what sort of challenges did that did that throw up? Actually, not much. But, you know, I took Lunar Lander hardware and you know, we eventually modified it to have the uh, the audio change. The audio was all RC constants. Mm-hmm. And so I just flip a switch and it would play this, you know, RC constant for stuff. Right. And that all was all done by Howie Delman, the engineer. Um, so I had a modified Lunar Lander board. Mm. Um, and I was already familiar with it from doing the alphanumeric. So I already had alphanumerics from day one. And I had my technician, I think uh, Paul Mancuso was the technician, jury up a little vector board with, you know, five buttons on it. And I had picked a hyperspace because I'd played Space War. And of course, you need the left and right and the fire and the thrust. Those are automatic from that. So I'd taken the ship that I remembered from uh, Space War and stuck that in. And I had created the, created the artwork for the asteroids, and, you know, three different sizes. It's easy to do in, in XY hardware just to create three different sizes by scaling. Yeah, I've seen the original drawings you you did and indeed read the your original sort of briefing document where, where you described your vision of what the game was and what i find amazing is that your brief that you wrote before you presumably put pen to paper describes the get the the final version of the game almost perfectly that is correct i could play it in my head now there are things that um, i had not counted on but for example um, there's a timer for when the saucer shoots at you. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, you may have killed him just, you know, a, a split second before he was going to shoot. But next time he comes out, I did not reset the timer. So it would shoot right away. Okay. And sometimes because of the overscan of the monitors, it would shoot and you wouldn't even see the saucer yet. And so people thought that was not fair. So I agreed with him. I waited, you know, a half second or a second or something before I'd shoot. Wait, make sure he's on the screen before he shoots. Yes. Basically. Uh, and that allows lurking, of course. And, uh, at one time, I had actually tried lurking, and I could not master it, so I thought it was okay, which turned out to be wrong. <laughs> Talk to us about the sources, Ed, because they are an interesting addition to the basic mechanic of you know clearing the screen of, of rocks. What, what was the purpose of the sources? Well, as I said from day one, I needed something to come in and, and shoot at you 
or and or the rocks if you were not doing anything. Right. And, and so if you waited too long, and then later on during game gameplay, I realized, well, I should start having them come out when there's just a few rocks, just because you don't have a lot of targets. You need something to harass the shit out of you because I didn't want to do it early because there's so many things flying around. And by the way, you know, I'll explain why there's so many things and why other things happen. But there's so much stuff on the screen, you can't deal with a saucer anyway. So waiting until the number of rocks gets less and less. And at that point, I can bring out a saucer. Now, let me let me tell you a little bit. I think we had 256 bytes of memory on the game. That includes the vector hardware startup vectors, mm-hmm. includes the stack. That includes memory for all of the rocks on the screen. So I could limit myself to, I think it was like 44 rocks or something. It included the ship and four shots. So I only had enough memory to store those 44 things plus other things on the screen with, in addition to your score and, and so on. So I was very limited memory wise. And so that limited the number of rocks I could have on the screen. So every now and then you'll see when the screen's really busy, you'll shoot a big rock and it'll disappear and that, or it'll break off just one small rock. And that's because I didn't have the memory for anything else. At what point did you realize, or, or was it generally felt within the corridors of Atari that you were onto something and this game was, was going to be big? Was it during its development or was it on a field test or was it just a sort of gradual, yeah, you know, this is this 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 game's going to fly? Uh, I knew before I was going to field test, it was probably going to be very good. Uh, the reason I say that is, well, I was going to say the most obvious reason is you go home at night and quite pretty much I worked nine to six every day. Uh, I was not, you know, mm-hmm. think of a traditional programmer, you know, video games working, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. <laughs> not at that time. Yeah. And you know, I go home to my family, but I come back in in the morning and the high score table was filled. So I knew people were playing it a lot. And there's a story that goes along with that. And one of the most prolific players was Owen Rubin. And his <laughs> initials were ORR. So Ed Rothberg came to me one Sunday and said, I'm tired of looking at ORR on the high score screens. And I said, well, I can take care of that. So the next day I came in and Owen came back and said, I think you got a bug. I couldn't enter my initials. I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, tell me what, what happened. I'll look into it. <laughs> and then he got wise and put in O space, R, right. <laughs> OR space. Brilliant. So I had to take all permutations. But I basically, when he entered that, I'd blank him. So high score would <laughs> sure. be blank. There'd be no initials in there. It didn't take him long to figure that out, by the way, but it was fun. But I'd also, uh, as a, during development, people walk by humming uh, Lawrence's well, you know, tiny bubbles. So they were giving me shit early, but uh, that, that changed later. Uh, and when I first field tested, we free tested up in Sacramento because we didn't know how to field test They were in our usual spot. And I watched a guy put in a quarter and he must have died within 20 seconds. You know, three lives, bang, bang, bang. But he took out another quarter and put it in. Right. And for me, that is the sign or a great game is when somebody dies, they know they've screwed up Yeah, and it's not the game killing them. They will put in another court and try it again. Yeah. Easy to learn, difficult to master, right? Well, that's part of that. Yeah, sure. Um, Ed, I wonder, I wonder if you, if you see any commonality in these early games and arguably indeed in some of the later games you, you wrote, there sort of seems to be a common theme to me running through certainly super breakout and asteroids. And that's, sort of clearing the screen of stuff. I wonder if that's something which was in your sort of psyche at the time. Well, it's a general psychic thing. I mean, you like to clear things out. So, yeah. I mean, when you kill all the bad guys or, you know, the screen is now clear, it's like, ah, you know, wait, you know, it's very satisfying. Yeah, indeed. I mean, if you keep throwing stuff in, it's, you, you don't get that satisfaction of getting it, getting the job done, as it were. Yeah. And um, just very briefly, um, Asteroids Deluxe, I, did you have any hand in that at all? Was the game offered to you or were you working on something else? Uh, I don't remember what I was doing at that time, but it was given to Dave Shepard. Right. And he took that game. And uh, so, no, I, he took my code. So Got it. other than that, I had nothing to do with it. I was not project leader or programmer or anything else on that project. But I thought it was a little too hard. But that's what management wanted. They wanted to cut down the time. And by the way, I'd actually generated a set of EPROMs to kill lurking. And we'd af- actually offered them to for sale to operators. Okay. And some operators bought them and they immediately took them out because it killed their earnings. So give you some idea of what, you know, how easy, easily you can ruin a, a good game by just making it a little bit too hard. 
Yeah, there's. Um, it's interesting. I I um I have a asteroids cabaret here, which was built in Atari Island, and um when I uh went to repair the board or at least take a look at the board, I noticed it had the um speed up hack in it, where one of the legs of one of the chips is bent up. I can't remember exactly how it's done, but um asteroids was certainly one of those early games where operators chose to make modifications to to extend its life. I'm not aware of that. Okay. Um, I was not aware of the speed up thing, but there are other things that, in fact, I don't even know how that would work. Uh, Now, you have to understand the way the XY monitors work is I have to feed a a pipeline of, you know, positions of what to draw. Okay. And initially when I did it, there had to be enough deflection. Otherwise, a thing called spot killer would come into effect. Mm -hmm. So that's why the scores at the top and the copyrights at the bottom. uh, I asked, you know, how much deflection they got, and they basically gave me a non-answer. And so I put that up, and it basically worked. So that's what I used. And I found out later that that's not empirically correct. There are some monitors or some PC boards with different resistors and variants Mm -hmm. that would the monitor would start fading as you know, fewer rocks would show up. Okay. And so the spot killer was actually coming into effect. It was turning the monitor off. Now, if you sped up the game, I don't know what that would do to the spot killer hardware. Mm, okay, interesting. Um, and, and just in terms of the sales of that game, Ed, I, off the top of my head, 75,000 units? I think that's about right. Yeah. Now, I've also heard rumors that there's probably equally a number of copyright or actually co- copied versions of that. Yeah, sure. I, I I just wondered what watching cabinet after cabinet rolling out of the factory to that sort of number, what that did to, you know, Atari's shoulders just to, to sort of see that level of sales just continuing on. Well, it did several things. It required us to up our manufacturing production skills. Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't know if they've gone to wave soldering at that point instead of, you know, hand soldering points. Because we had later on, we had a machine that would auto stuff parts, right? And then and wave solder the entire board. So they just had to test the board and you know, plug it in, basically. Mm-hmm. But it w- machines would do everything else. So I don't remember at Asteroids time whether that process was fully integrated or not. But they had to up production lines too to deal with that many games. And 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 of course, Ed, uh, you were the lucky recipient of a golden. Asteroids. I was not the recipient, but oh, they thought, did make one, and they stuck it in our lobby. Right. Okay. And that was to celebrate the. I think it was the the fifty thousandth. That's what my recollection is too. Um, Ed, your your follow up game, your follow up game to Asteroids was the equally huge centipede. Um, it came soon after, and along with it, a change in your role at Atari. You know, you moved into a more managerial role, I believe. Am I correct in uh, thinking that? Well, at the time, there were no advancements for programmers. So, yes, I was promoted to a supervisor, hiring and firing and dealing with people. Right. But I quit after a year because, you know, I was not partic- not as good at it as I was programming. I wanted to get back to programming. Mm, okay. And so, yes, I'd hired Donna Bailey mm. and I'd find a game in our brainstorming ideas that I thought I could turn into a game. And you've probably seen some of the original proposal I made to it. And she started programming on that. But quite honestly, you know, I, I wanted to get back into programming. So there was parts of it. I know all of self-test I probably did. But some of, you know, animating the uh, centipede legs I probably did too. But I can't tell you how much that she did and I did at this point. So, you know, we both are heavily involved in that game. Well, you've certainly preempted my next question there because that was going to be, you know, can you speak to the role of Donna um, somewhat? You know, what was, has has her work been under or over-emphasized, you know, in, in over the years, would you say? I can't say, but I know they wanted to interview her because it's, you know, it's a female programmer in a game and it was like, yeah, you know, sure. I've already been yeah. interviewed. That's fine. She can do all that. I don't care. You know, there's plenty of plenty of that stuff that can go around, and she's welcome to it. Yeah. And so, you know, they the media certainly carried that on, and I was perfectly happy. It's promotion for a centipede. Good for Atari. You know, it's there was no downside as far as I'm concerned. And and by the way, at that time, Atari was not a letting people know who was doing what game. So we were not of course our names on the yeah. game. And, and sure. stuff like that. So we could put our initials, but they had no idea who was actually doing it. Who, who, yeah, 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 for sure. Um, you know, you know th- there's lots out there um, online and in print about about the origins of Centipede. Um, let, let's clear this up. Where where did the idea for Centipede, you know, straight from the horse's mouth, if you like, where did that idea come from? It came from a brainstorming session. There was a thing called Bug Shooter. Right. And I think I 
have sent Paul Drury the actual original document from the brainstorming session. That's definitely gone forever. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) I'm just just kidding. Go on. And so you can see from that. And then I think I also sent him my uh, proposal. I sent to management saying, this is what I wanted to do. Okay. You know, I was going to change the screen to vertical. Yeah, we see, you know, I mean, uh, we see all these old videos of Atari's famous brainstorming sessions, some some of which were were staged for camera. Um, and actually, now you mention it, there is there are references to a to a book called Bug Hunter, right? Yes. Uh, was it a book Bug title? Shooter, I think it's called. Bug Shooter, right. Okay, fine. I could, I could see if I could find that. Oh, here it is. It was called Bug Shooter. Oh, he's like right next to me. <laughs> I have the dog. I have it up there and I'll read it to you. Okay, go. This is a kind of video shooting arcade XY monitor upright in cocktail cabinet. Would probably not be a simultaneous two player. The pair control a gun, which would move horizontally back and forth at the bottom of the screen. Along multiple segment object would appear at the top of the screen. Yes, object would snake its way back and forth across the screen as it advances towards the player's gun. The player must shoot and destroy the object before it reaches his gun. They eat metal. The difficulty in doing this is that each time the object is shot, one or but central segments, that segment is destroyed and now we have two smaller objects, each snaking down the screen on separate paths at a higher rate of speed than before. The player is given an X amount of lives earned each by achieving bonus score levels as player progresses longer and longer centipedes come on screen and move faster and faster. So as you can see from this, I changed it from an XY to a raster. I made it a vertical cabinet. Yeah. I made it a centipede since it was a long that matched the description of that. Well, hang on though, Ed. Why, why, why not XY? Why, why did you go raster monitor with this and not vector monitor? Uh, XY monitors are, you know, there was no reason to go XY monitor first of all, and second of all, I wanted color. Right. And we were just getting into color uh, monitors at that point, so there was no reason to go XY, which was all black and white. Well, or some color, but it was right. just not particularly good. Sure. I'm sure. I'm. I'm actually, I, I seem to think somebody's probably done a Vectrex XY version of Centipede, actually. Now, now, now it springs to mind, like a homebrew thing. Um, as, a, as a shooter, Ed, um, you know, why was the trackball chosen as the player's control method rather than a joystick? What was the uh, impetus behind that? Uh, I needed both multi-direction and multi-speed. And you cannot do that with a joystick. You can have eight directions with a joystick, but you can have single speed. And yes, if you actually take a look at the code, there is actual code in there to use a joystick, but you really can't play a game well with a joystick. You have to have something that can speed from one end side to the other or move slower when you need you know, just minor changes. Yeah. And you really need a trackball for that. just the audio of centipede it's, it's one of those games alongside you know pac-man donkey kong space invaders that you know it, it it forms part of that oral tapestry if you like of the you know the classic arcade um it's w- w- you know the audio um side of things what what kind of hand in that did you have was that a huge thing for you or just like an afterthought would you say i think i took the custom chip off of uh, the vcs or something huh. i needed something to keep people from copying the board hmm. if i remember right on the this game. And uh, later on, I heard that people were actually trying to find old VCS units so they could pull a chip out. Oh, really? And to, cre- to do bootlegs? Yeah, to create copies of the hardware. That's amazing. So we basically had our own custom chip to do the audio, and that's what we were using to pr- copy protect our game. And it came from the VCS? I believe it was the VCS. Yeah. Um, Ed, I'm just looking at a document, um, and it's an internal memo to Steve Calfee from Ed Log, dated July the 17th, 1980. And the subject line is protection for coin-operated games, and it's a, it's some ideas that you had it at the time. Um, I don't know if this is something which Steve Calfee asked you to pull together. And um, you're saying, to stop the copiers from copying PCBs and ROMs, we recommend that the following be done. Number one, use Pokey or some other Atari custom chip. Oh, yeah, that was that was the chip. There you yeah. go. Um, and number two, use Atari part numbers on standard chips such as the 2901s, whatever that means. Yeah, that's the uh, microcoder, I think, on the XY monitors. And then... And then you'd build a checksum to check that the Atari copyright message is being displayed on um, certain screens within a game. That was actually done in uh, in several games. Um, Ed, were you were you very comfortable being in a more managerial role? Hell no, <laughs> I didn't like it. <laughs> Why not? Uh, well, I. Just- I like doing games. I like programming. I don't particularly like, to, you know, managing people. Okay. So with Millipede, we assume that you did have a return to a more hands-on on role. So did you, you know, were you totally responsible for all the design and the coding? I was not responsible for all the coding. For example, uh, Mark, Cerner, Mark Cerny, who was working ah. at Detroit at the time, 
came in and said, you know, why don't you put uh, the game of life in there? And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. And I don't have time right now. I'm doing something else in the game. So I said, you're welcome to. So he put in overnight, you know, I came in the next morning and game of life was there. So at one point, the mushrooms would use uh, Conway's rules of life to rearrange its pattern. Wow, yeah. I hear he was quite a talented uh, chap, was, uh, was Mark. Yes, yes, he was. He's, and he's done a lot of good things. Also, uh, Mark Cerny uh, said he wanted to do, I don't know if he said or, you know, but at some point he did the self, uh, the a track mode to show all the different characters. Yeah, and which brings us nice on because it did add quite a few new characters. The, the earwig, the mosquito, and uh, you had right. the sort of DDT thing that exploded. How how did That's you correct. sort of approach Millipede on the on the back of Centipede? Had you got a list of things that you wished you'd had time to do the first time? There was one thing I always wanted to do, and that was I wanted to put a, um, I guess, a border around the lower area to show you where you could actually move. Ah. And so I did that. That what I definitely wanted to do. Also, I wanted to break up the pattern of the mushrooms a little bit. So I added some means for that to happen, too. Uh, and I wanted to have some other characters come down and bombard you. Yeah, it's it, yeah. it's definitely more of a challenge. Can can I ask you then, Ed, um, yeah. which do you, which you prefer, centipede or millipede? Um you know, is that like choosing one of your children? I don't really know. I guess I guess I'd lean more towards centipede, but that's because it's you know millipede's a little bit harder. It is. It's a proper challenge. Um, it's interesting that you say that centipede's possibly your favourite because centipede did sell hugely well, and millipede not so much. I just wondered, um, was that kind of an perhaps an early warning that the the state of the coin op industry was kind of changing? Did you with any alarm bells ringing at that point, nineteen eighty two? No, I don't. That was nineteen eighty three, I think, for ah, millipede. Okay. And uh, no, I don't think so. But by eighty late eighty four, I would say definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's when the the trammels came in and took over the the kind of console and computer side of Atari. Well, don't, that was yeah. that was sort of after the fact. In other words, the arcades as well as cons- well consumer had was hemorrhaging mm-hmm. money right and left, yeah. but arcades were also cutting back partly because of the consumer titles. Were, mm-hmm. I suspect cutting into it, but the real issue at that point was you know consumer lost a billion dollars that year, <laughs> yep. and Time Warner said none of this crap and tried to get rid of it. So they basically uh, gave it to Tremiel, you know, with three hundred some odd million dollars in receivables. Mm-hmm. And probably gave him some other hundred, you know, tens of millions of dollars, mm-hmm. um, you know, and bought a little share in their company too. And I think CoinOp was in a little bit of problem because I think they'd done something and not paid Namco, probably something to do with a Pac-Man license or something. Mm-hmm. So they went to Namco and said, how would you like to have the CoinOp group? And Namco said, sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, just, just the last thing on that. Of course, um, Atari did keep hold or warner i should say more accurately warner did keep hold of the the coin op division um the one part that was actually still making money so did it actually affect you that much or did coin op kind of have that identity which meant that these other bits didn't affect you so much well it affected me in several ways number one i think namco had 51 percent of the company Mm -hmm. and time warner 49 so they you know basically ran the company i don't know what that meant for time warner but as far as me, I had a new boss, uh, Nakajima came okay. in and was running the company. He had a more of a Japanese flavor and certainly had a closer ties to Namco. So for me, I got to go to Namco Japan and actually see what they're doing, showing off what I'm doing. And so on. So we, in particular, I went there and saw the uh, FC, which is Family Computer. Oh. And uh, that allowed me to do Centipede for the FC. I actually started Centipede and we actually had to sue the other Atari company. <laughs> There's Atari income there's atari games mm-hmm. inc we had to sue the other company and said who actually owned the rights to centipede because you know we did it yeah, yeah. but the judge basically threw it their hands said you know everything prior to the contract prior to 85 belonged to atari inc and anything afterwards belonged to atari games mm-hmm. so i lost centipede even though i'd already completed centipede on the fc uh, but that also helped me because when i saw later uh, tetris i looked at that and said wow we could do this and so i actually implemented tetris for the fc yeah. in early 19 january 1997 i took to a ces show and we showed it and then came back and uh, management wanted some changes so i said fine and i really improved it and we showed it again at the june ces and we started selling the game and then we of course lost that later on 
Yeah. Yes, we'll we'll come on to that uh, story. For now, I'll pass on to Tony, who's going to pick up one of your best known games. Uh, indeed, um, Ed, I, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about your next game for Coinop, which, of course, was the the Mighty Gauntlet. Um, we we understand that there are a couple of things that inspired uh, the creation of Gauntlet. One was your son's love of Dungeons and Dragons, and a certain Atari game called Dandy. Is that is that right? It wasn't an Atari. Well, it was a game done for the Atari ST, I think it was, mm-hmm. and it was done by somebody else. And yes, that really, you know, I put two and two together and said. Ah, I've got. I can do D and D. So Robin Ziegler and I, another programmer at Atari, uh, wrote up in 1984 how to do uh, basically D and D using you know larger than screen world. And uh, unfortunately, in '85 there were layoffs and Robin Ziegler was let go. Number two, we did not have the hardware that was capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. So um, at that point, I went to my engineer uh, Pat McCarthy and said, you know, this is what I need to do to get this game done. Can you implement this? And I think Pat McCarthy did an excellent job and changed our Mach 16 to a, what we call a Mach 24, which means if the motion object is actually not visible, he actually doesn't use a full motion object of drawing time and can actually draw more motion objects per scan line. Okay. So does that mean the PCB is only drawing things and calculating the position of things when they appear on the screen? That's correct. Okay. Instead of doing a no-op through the motion object, I actually said, skip this and go to the next one. And the other interesting thing about that too is the PC board that would allow us to do this hardware was huge, you know, you know like system one size. Mm. And so, you know, and Pat McCarthy and I went to management and said, we want to do a four-layer board. Now, there are many advantages to doing a four-layer board. Uh, number one is it's much smaller. Number two, the noise reduction is really reduced. So we actually use a lot of less bypass capacitors between the uh, power and ground plane to reduce noise. And also for RF emissions, it's greatly reduced. The downside, of course, is that our PC layout people could not handle four-layer boards at that point. Their software could not handle it. Mm-hmm. But they did upgrade it. The other downside was the cost. We, you know, we knew the four-layer boards cost a lot more. But in the end, it was supposed to be a break-even. However, after we've done this and did a few layer boards, the prices of four layer boards came down. So it was actually, from that point on, all games were done with four layer boards. Interesting. And um, didn't Bob Flanagan have a role in the in the development of the game? Absolutely. He uh, joined me for Gauntlet uh, and we did Gauntlet 2 together and Zybots. So yes, he, he and I were both programming on that. Um, Ed, so the the multiplayer element of Gauntlet, of course, meant that ultimately, in theory, there would be more coin drop on the arcade floor. And I just wondered how much the sort of commercial realities and requirements of the industry, how did those influence the some of the gameplay choices within the game and, and, and the actual construct of pay, you know, pay as you go, as it were? Well, the interesting thing is I've trying to figure out a while for a long time how to get more money into a game. And this is the first time that I had to, you know, basically allow four players and so they could simultaneously put in a quarter each. Mm. So basically a dollar. So this mm. was a big step, a huge step up for us. Uh, number two, there are a lot of implications to put four players around a cabinet. Sure. Um, number one, I didn't want a plex in front of the monitor and that had never been done. You know, omitting the plex has never been done before. So we had a big problem trying to convince operators that monitors are fine. You could drop a bolt, you know, a, a very large metal ball on it. It would not hurt the monitor. Number two, we had to have a metal plex instead of a you know cardboard plex bezel around the monitor so that they can't get you know can't get around it. Uh, and number three, I did not have an overhang on the monitor because you know it's upright and I get a lot of reflections from the lights above. And that seemed to be the best angle. Right. The rub bottom I had was marketing basically said, you can't get four players around a cabinet, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because most, most cabinets get in sideways and the most you can get around is two people. But I really wanted to try four players. So I pushed it through. My reputation allowed me to get away with that. And so, you know, we actually field tested it. I showed marketing, yes, indeed, you can't get a cabinet with four players. And it does really work. Yeah, interesting. Um, just as an aside, a cabinet was sold recently here in the UK by a collector, which is a two-player version of Gauntlet, right. um, which I, th- I think was made in Atari Island, which I thought was interesting. I'd never seen one before. Yes, there were were some two-player cabinets made. Okay. Um, 
the real first one that I did, our board was small enough. Uh, if you're familiar with, uh, if you go into bars and see these little countertop games, mm. there was an empty cabinet and my boss, uh, Dan Van Eldren, went on vacation. So I took it. We put a power supply, a PC board in and put two joysticks. It had two joysticks on the control panel. Mm. So we had a fully working two-player gauntlet and I put it on his desk. So when he came back from vacation, here was a two-player gauntlet sitting on the countertop sitting on his desk. You anticipated my next question, actually. Did, did you have any, any idea what what actually happened to that cabinet? I do not know what happened to that. Okay. Maybe <laughs> maybe Dan Van Alden took it home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ed, uh, it's now 1987, and the industry is arguably a shadow of its former self. Um, did you know? Did the flagging market push you into the realms of 3D? Um, and is this why Zybots is is a radically different looking game? Would you say? <laughs> real impetus behind Zybots is, is not to do with 3D. Okay. It's the fact one day uh, Doug Snyder and I were talking he was talking about a PC game that was you know drawn vertically and they could draw the uh, the game by doing a bitmap vertical draws. Of course Atari yeah, did yeah. not have a bitmap hardware. So I thought about it for a minute and said, you know, I could probably do this in sta- our stamp hardware, 8 by 8 stamps if you limited your view to like 30, 45 and 60, you know, 60 degrees. Right. So I sat down, went home, you know, with graph paper and wrote down the appropriate maze, you know, rectangular maze in those diagrams. And I figured, yeah, I could do it. So I needed to do a new controller. And the real issue, of course, is now that you're over the shoulder, uh, you need a map to show where in the hell you're at. Otherwise, people are going to get lost. Yeah. And so that's how that game came about and uh, most of the parts with it. But because the control is so different and the controller is different, you know, it didn't do as well. And by the way, it was initial gauntlet characters and Marketing came back and said, we don't want any more Gauntlet. No more Gauntlet. No more Gauntlet. Uh, so this was essentially going to be Gauntlet 3. Yeah. But they said no. It was called Catacombs. Right. It was Catacombs with Gauntlet characters. Oh, but okay. they asked me to change it. And, uh, you know, I regret to this day changing it. I would have. I went to a more major Havoc style character. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of uh, to use the term uh, in a more modern vernacular, you, you were kind of hacking the um the 3d it was almost like a pseudo 3d wasn't it that's R- correct rather than a that's correct yeah 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 okay so you're working within the limitations i kind of like that yeah, we had no 3d hardware we had no bit sure. hardware so yeah really difficult to do amazing though that's um you know um, necessities of mother of invention and all that also really um interesting to hear that was a it was essentially going to be Gauntlet 3 or thereabouts. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't a huge commercial success. Um, so, you know, looking back, Ed, what what do you think you didn't quite get right? With, with Zybots? Uh, with Zybots. Yeah, yeah, with Zybots. What, what, can you identify where you think you you may have taken a misstep, perhaps? No, I don't feel like take a misstep. It was just one okay. of those games that, you know, because of limitations and people's um, cannot visualize 3D in a lot of cases that it makes it really difficult and that eliminates a lot of our clients unfortunately yeah sure i suppose lots of people kind of just looked at one section of a screen and played it as a top-down um plan shooter maybe um so so by the late 80s tengen had been set up and you were making games for home consoles as you've alluded to earlier like the nes uh, or the nes I should say, perhaps. Well, it was called NES in the US. It was the NES. FC, FC in Japan. Yeah. I think that's a British thing. People just say NES, don't they? Which is really annoying. Um, and you made a really impressive version of Tetris. Um, so how how did you find the transition, Ed, from, you know, from coin-op to coding for consoles? Was it was it a whole different ball game then? <laughs> Actually not, because the processor was basically a 6502, which basically we had run for, Same thing. Yeah, sure. for many, many years. And number two, it was basically stamp hardware that few motion objects so it's like you know i'm doing stamp hardware so it's no big deal yeah sure okay fine so it was a piece of cake but reverse engineering was a little more difficult because you had to ping a lot of registers and see what happened right so it was a familiar environment what what about the actual environment i mean in in terms of your teammates or your your colleagues um was the atmosphere different for coin up than you know more so than consoles well first of all i was still in the coin up group i was just doing a consumer title Oh, I see. Fine. Okay. So yep. there, there was no change in environment in that respect. I, mean, I was still using, right. I believe, an old uh, development system for debugging that, although I c- cannot remember all the details about it. Right. So you were, you were, you, so essentially not much change. You were literally where you were, right. same people around you. You were just working for a different system. Right. That's all. And there was just me on the project. 
and that was it. So kind of easier in some ways, perhaps. Yes, it is. <laughs> but it's dating back to 1978 when it was just me. When it could just be you. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, lovely. Ed, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to hand you over to Paul. Ed, let's move into the 90s and one of your later coin-ops, and, and perhaps one not as well known as some of the ones you produced in the 80s, and that's Space Lords, which sounds very ambitious for the time. Um, was the initial concept yours? Uh, yes, it was, but the impetus of that, and I don't remember how it came about, what I was trying to figure out how to do was a, a true 3D game, but not really 3D. Okay. We had growth motion object hardware by that time, so I can make objects you know, shrink and, and grow. But I was trying to figure out how to do a 3D game, but not really do 3D. It's all faked. That's how that game came about. I was just trying to see, if, you know, can I do this? And then I said, well, you know, I wanted to get 50 cent play, so I'd have a sidekick. So if one guy's pilot, one pilot. One player's gunner, and I wanted to hook multiple cabinets together so that you could have multiple people and different strategies that, for that. Um, that's interesting because so you, I you mentioned I, that I, you know I tried to add a lot of different things to mm-hmm. it. You'd mentioned earlier with Gauntlet that you know there was a commercial consideration in making it four players. Was this sort of a natural extension to that? Because like you say, you could have eight players if you managed to link up these cabinets. Was again, was the sort of commercial model pushing the uh, the gameplay? Well, it, unfortunately, I think a second player was sort of a, uh, I needed something to, to take up the, you know, I needed something to earn add extra money for the extra space. Right. And so I had to add something. And the only thing I could think of adding was a gunner. Yeah. <laughs> so it was not, it was not part of the initial idea of you know, getting lots of money earnings it was just well i've got the space let's put a gunner there and see what i can see what it'll do okay did you i mean we, we ended up later in the 90s we ended up seeing lots of these kind of multiplayer linked cabinets this was one of the earlier ones is that um did you see this kind of major multiplayer setups was that was that coin op thinking we're gonna we need to do something different because of the competition from home consoles at the time, like the the, the Super Nintendo, the Mega Drive. Is, is that what pushed those developments? Uh, that was not my impetus. My impetus is, is to provide interesting gameplay, and you provide interesting gameplay by having multiple people in your world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and yes, I wanted to have I wanted to implement a means to have multiple players in your world without having, you know, all the people sitting around one console because I only have one view for one player. So if you only need multiple views, you're going to need multiple cabinets. Yeah. It was certainly a really interesting game at the time. Did you, looking back, was it too ambitious? What's your view of it looking back, Ed? I don't think it was too ambitious. We got to learn how to do linked up cabinets. We got to learn that, you know, having a sidekick really wasn't adding that much extra revenue for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it was a big cabinet, which was really detrimental to, uh, because it could only be sold in the larger arcades. Of course. Of course. Um, but it was our first step into connected cabinets. So I think from that standpoint, it was good. Yeah. It was also, um, I knew it was not going to appeal to everybody because it was, again, it was 3D and people cannot really handle 3D yeah. in that respect yeah. without a real good frame of reference and space is not a good frame of reference. That's true. I know with that, that you can look behind. In fact, you, you've, unless you do keep consistently looking behind you, you are going to die at that game. Again, was that a concept that the players were not quite ready for yet? Well, remember the radar screen is very unique in mm-hmm. that. And it was something I implemented to show you basically where things were. And people had to get used to that mm-hmm. because it would tell you both you know, direction distance and it gave you a lot of information yeah it's, it, to me it's a, so people are on their six it's way around the edge so you need yeah. <laughs> to me it's a sort of game that would definitely work you know a few years later on on kind of linked up consoles um again and perhaps an example of you being ahead of your time it may have been um We've talked a lot about your famous games. Of course we have. You've had so many huge hits. But it sometimes uh, gives the uh, perhaps people the, the false impression that everything you've ever done has been a hit. So I just want to go through some of the games that you worked on that never made it out. First, I'm going to go right back to the 70s and say Wolfpack. What are your memories of the submarine game Wolfpack? Well, it was already completed by the time I joined Atari. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I could take one look at that. And it was not a unique gameplay. The gameplay had already been done before. 
the cabinet was huge and I couldn't see them selling many of those. <laughs> so from that standpoint, I was not surprised. <laughs> Let's take another one. After you'd finished um, Video Pinball, but before you uh, start on Asteroids, I believe you started working on, on a racing game. I, I, have I got that right? I worked on a th- uh, Asteroids hardware racing game. Yes, it was a Malibu. So we actually went to Malibu Grand Prix and drove the go-karts around. And so it was basically a night driver version. Mm-hmm. It was run in XY hardware um, using semi-real physics, I guess you'd say. It's closer to real car physics. Uh, best you can do on a 6502. But um, what would Namco's game? Uh, pole Position? Game? Pole Position came out and that sort of killed Okay. Me. So it was going to be a vector-based 3D driving game. It sounds quite interesting. It, that's correct. I want to ask about Road Runner because whilst that did come out, Atari did release a Road Runner in 1985. I understand that you were working on a Laserdisc version the year before. Um, what happened there? Well, Laserdisc games had come out, become very popular, and unfortunately, the Laserdisc players are commercial grade, which you know <laughs> you're talking maybe 100 hours mean time to failure, whereas in arcades, you know, they may be running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. So they have a tendency to fail. But I did a version of Roadrunner with mm-hmm. cartoons so that when you managed to kill a Wile E. Coyote, you would uh, cut to the appropriate cartoon that matched that appropriate depth. And so you get to see, you know, Wile E. Coyote annihilated through one of the Chuck Jones' famous cartoons. Now, we actually went with the field test with this and it was earned enough that we couldn't kill it because it didn't earn enough, but it wasn't earning so much money that we wanted to keep it. Hmm. And so they came back and said, can you do this game on System 1? And I said, no, I have another game I'd rather do instead. Um, so please have somebody else do it. So I think uh, Greg Rivera and Norm Avalar took over. Um, and it could have been that. No regrets? No regrets leaving the temperamental laser disc technology behind, I assume, Ed? None whatsoever. And the game that I left it for was gone. So mm, I even have no reservations about handing that game off either. <laughs> um, okay, the next one I want to ask is that uh, Tony and I were, were walking in the storage area of the Strong Museum uh, over in upstate New York. And we came across a game called Maze Invaders, which again, I think is one of yours. Have you any memories of this game, Maze Invaders? Oh, absolutely. There's... It's my son's favorite game, and uh, I held the game at my house for many years and then eventually sold it, and probably Strong has my copy. And I think the other copy was an arcade operator who tested it. I think he was at Texas or someplace, mm-hmm. and he loved the game so much he wanted to buy it, and he actually bought it off of Atari. So there's actually two cabinets of Maze Invaders out there. This is fascinating. Tell us a little bit about the game and then perhaps why it never went into production then. Tell us what, what the how did the game play? Well, it, there was a dynamic maze going on, and uh, and you had a character that you tried to you know eat appropriate all the fruit to, to exit before you exited the maze, uh, and the mazes were all connected by a diagram that was listed on the bezel. Mm-hmm. So you knew what maze you're in, by, and just look up on the bezel, you know depending on which exit you took, where you ended up your your next level. Uh, so that was very unique in that respect. Yeah. The gameplay was a little frustrating sometimes because the dynamic maze would often cut you off. Ah. And the people felt a little frustrated by that. Uh, so you've just said your son loved it. The arcade owner loved it. Why didn't it go into production, Ed? I'm sure it's from earnings. And uh, right. I mm. don't know if I have any earnings still available to even check, but I'm pretty sure that that's what the story uh, is. Cash, the uh, cash box is king. I, I, I um, talked to Mike uh, Halley about the game Area 51, and he commented that before... Atari got onto Area 51, they were working, or he actually said Ed Log was working on a gun game in a graveyard. Does that ring any bells? Absolutely. Uh, it was a response to another shooting game. I wanted to do a shooting game, and uh, I started that, and at that point I was getting a little, you know, I wanted to do consumer stuff at this point because consumers were going, so... Yeah. Uh, you know, I was going to go to EA and do a consumer title. And of course, when I got to EA, I, they, they wanted to start up a coin-up group. <laughs> yeah. So I decided to help them. But you know, they disbanded that about 15 or 18 months later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I couldn't find any games there I really wanted to work on. 
So at that point, uh, Tari offered me a chance to do a consumer title to converting um, Wayne Gretzky 3D hockey to the N64, which is... That it was, was not it. released yet, and it was coming out in 18 months or so. I see. So that gun game winner went, went to the grave, um, I suppose. There. I, I've mentioned... Right, you know, you know, I did do the control, so we had a gun game, and you know, uh, but it was not super a- as accurate as I would like, and I never determined why. But, mm-hmm. you know, because what you do is you basically it would determine by timing when the vertical scan was actually drawing something on the screen. And by that, you could time and determine where you were at on the screen. I see. Did the, did the game ever have a name? Did it get so far that you actually named the project? Uh, yes, and I don't remember what it was. I have my computer screen up here, and I'm going through some stuff. For example, I had uh, you know Maze Invaders uh, PDF up on the screen right now, and I'm looking through the artwork and stuff that I had. And I was, oh, I see. We did a player survey. Yeah, they had control problems. I, I love the fact that you've got an archive of all your past work. So my final bit on this is that, so uh, I've mentioned some of the games that you worked on that never made it to release. Um, are there any others that spring to mind that, um, you know, you started work on, but, but they never got finished? Yes, there are other games. And uh, there was one just after Gauntlet 2. Now, what was the name of my multiplayer, multi-cabinet connected game? Oh, God. <laughs> but it was another game it was called the same okay but it was based on another uh, cocktail cabinet uh, a shooting game and i st- we started that and bob flanagan and i played it you know for mm-hmm. a little while and i just got to the point and said you know this is not going anywhere this is not fun okay so i just killed it fair enough and that's not unusual for me to kill games you know i basically got gone to market management before and said you know this is not going to be fun Hmm. And of course, it's all about the fun and all about the taking. Yeah. Of all the games that you started work on that never got finished, Ed, which one do you wish had come to market? None of them. <laughs> no, I think I made the right decision every time. Just looking back at your time in, in um, Atari's coin-op division, Ed, especially around the late 70s and early 80s, would you describe it now, looking back, as the golden age of video gaming? It certainly was in the uh, you know, late 70s and early 80s when we could do anything and pretty much everything was new. Hardware was getting just good enough to start doing some interesting things. Mm. And you know, you didn't have a lot of... Do a game now, and it's like, well, that's some parts of this, some parts of that game, and something's new. And maybe one or two things might be a little new, or you just did a better job of artwork or something. It's very hard to do something totally new. Ed, thank you very much. It's it's been an honor to um, to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you, and you're welcome. And uh, likewise, Ed, um, as the owner of an Asteroids and a Centipede, I can assure you they still get lots of love um, here by everybody who visits. Well, good. Ed, you have lived up to your name. That was a super duper game chat. <laughs> thank you so much for your time, Ed. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury and arcade blogger Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
Thank you.